Section forty two of Yiddish Tales. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Yiddish Tales translated by Helena Frank and read by Adrian Pretzelis. Section forty two. Loeb Shapiro, born about eighteen eighty in the government of Kiev, Little Russia, came to Chicago in nineteen o six and to New York for a short time in nineteen o seven nineteen o eight. Now. 1912, in business in Switzerland. Contributor to Die Zukunft, New York, Collected Works, Novelen, One Volume, Warsaw, 1910. If It Was a Dream by Loeb Shapiro Yes, it was a terrible dream, but when one is only nine years old one soon forgets and Maya was nine and a few weeks before it came to pass. Yes, and things had happened in the house every now and then to remind one of it, but then Maya lived more out of doors than indoors in the wild streets of New York. Tartilov and New York! What a difference! New York had supplanted Tartilov, effaced it from his memory, there remained only a faint, occasional recollection of that horrid dream, if it really was a dream. It was this way. Maya dreamt that he was sitting in Cheder, learning, but more for show's sake than seriously, because during the Yamim Noraim, near the close of the session, the Rebbe grew milder, and the Cheder less hateful and as he sat there and learnt, he heard a banging of doors in the street, and through the window saw Jews running to and fro, as if bereft of their senses, fleeing themselves hither and thither, exactly like leaves in a gale, or as when a witch rises from the ground in a column of dust, and whirls across the road so suddenly and unexpectedly that it makes one's flesh creep and at the sight of this running up and down in the street, the Rebbe collapsed in his chair, white as death, his under-lip trembling. Maya never saw him again. He was told later that the Rebbe had been killed, but somehow it gave him no pleasure, although the Rebbe used to beat him, neither did it particularly grieve him. It probably made no great impression on his mind. After all, what did it mean exactly? Killed. And the question slipped out of his head unanswered, together with the Rebbe, who was gradually forgotten. And then the real horror began. There were two days hiding away in the mikvah, he and some other little boys and a few older people, without food, without drink, without father and mother. Maya was not allowed to get out and get home and once, when he screamed, they nearly suffocated him, after which he sobbed and whimpered, unable to stop crying all at once. Now and then he fell asleep, and when he woke everything was just the same, and all through the terror and the misery he seemed to hear only one word, Goyim, which came to have a very definite and terrible meaning for him. Otherwise everything was in a maze, and as far as seeing goes, 
he really saw nothing at all. Later, when they came out again, nobody troubled about him, or came to see after him, and a stranger took him home, and neither his father nor his mother had a word to say to him, any more as if he had just come home from Cheda as on any other day. Everything in the house was broken. They had twisted his father's arm and bruised his face. His mother lay on the bed, her fair hair tossed about, and her eyes half-closed, her face pale and stained, and something about her whole appearance so rumpled and sluttish. It reminded one of a tumbled bed-quilt. His father walked up and down the room in silence, looking at no one, his bound arm in a white sling, and when Maya, conscious of some invisible calumny, burst out crying, his father only gave him a gloomy, irritated look, and continued to span the room as before. In about three weeks' time they sailed for America. The sea was very rough during the passage, and his mother lay the whole time in her berth and was very sick. Maya was quite fit, and his father did nothing but pace the deck, even when it poured with rain, till they came and ordered him downstairs. Maya never knew exactly what happened, but once a Gentile on board the ship passed a remark on his father, made fun of him or something, and his father drew himself up and gave the other a look, nothing more than a look, and the Gentile got such a fright that he began crossing himself, and he spit out, and his lips moved rapidly. To tell the truth, Maya was frightened himself by the contraction of his father's mouth, the grind of his teeth, and by his eyes which nearly started from his head. Maya had never seen him look like that before, and soon his father was once more pacing the deck, his head down, his wet collar turned up, his hands in his sleeves, and his back slightly bent. When they arrived in New York City, Maya began to feel giddy, and it was not long before the whole of Tartilov appeared to him like a dream. It was in the beginning of winter, and soon the snow fell, the fresh white snow, and it was something like. Maya was now a boy, and went to school, made snowballs, slid on slides, built little fires in the middle of the street, and nobody interfered. He went home to eat and sleep, and spent what you may call his life in the street. In their room were cold, piercing draughts, which made it feel dreary and dismal. Maya's father, a lean, large-boned man with a dark brown face and a black beard, had always been silent, and it was but seldom he had said as much as, "'Are you there, Zipper?' Do you hear me, Zipper? But now his silence was frightening. The mother, on the other hand, used to be full of life and spirits, skipping about the place, and it was Schloime here and Schloime there, and her tongue wagging merrily. And suddenly there was an end to it all. The father only walked back and forth over the room, and she turned to look after him like a child in disgrace and looked and looked, 
as though forever wanting to say something and never daring to say it. There was something new in her look, something dog-like. Yes, on my word, something like what there was in the eyes of Mishka, the dog with which Maya used to play over there in that little town in dreamland. Sometimes Maya, waking suddenly in the night, heard, or imagined he heard, his mother sobbing, while his father lay in the other bed, puffing at his cigar, but so hard it was frightening, because it made a little fire every time in the dark, as though of itself in the air, just over the place where his father's black head must be lying. Then Maya's eyes would shut of themselves, his brain was confused, and his mother and the glowing sparks and the whole room sank away from him, and Maya dropped off to sleep. Twice that winter his mother fell ill. The first time it lasted two days, the second four, and both times the illness was dangerous. Her face glowed like an oven, her lower lip bled beneath her sharp white teeth and yet wild, terrifying groans betrayed what she was suffering, and she was often violently sick, just as when they were at sea. At those times she looked at her husband with the eyes in which there was no prayer. Mishka once ran a thorn deep into his paw, and he squealed and growled angrily, and sucked his paw as though he were trying to swallow it, thorn and all and the look in his eyes was the look of Maya's mother in her pain. In those days his father, too, behaved differently, for instead of walking to and fro across the room, he ran, puffing incessantly at his cigar, his brow like a thundercloud, and occasional lightnings flashing from his eyes. He never looked at his wife, and neither of them looked at Maya who then felt himself utterly wretched and forsaken. And, it is very odd, but it was just on these occasions that Maya felt himself drawn to his home. In the street things were as usual, but at home it was like being in shul during the solemn days at the blowing of the ram's horn, when so many tall fathers stand with talus over their heads, and hold their breath, and when out of the distance there comes unfolding over the heads of the people the long, loud blast of the shofar. And both times when his mother recovered, the shadow that lay on their home had darkened. His father was gloomier than ever, and his mother, when she looked at him, had a still more crushed and dog-like expression, as though she were lying outside in the dust of the street. The snowfalls became rarer, then they ceased altogether, and there came into the air a feeling of something new. What exactly it would have been hard for Maya to say. However, it was something good, very good, for everyone in the street was glad of it, one could see that by their faces, which were more lightsome and gay. On Erev Pesach the sky of home cleared a little too, 
Street and house joined hands through the windows, opened now for the first time since winter set in, and this neighbourly act of theirs cheered Meyer's heart. His parents made preparations for Pesach, and poor little preparations they were. There was no matzah baking with its merry to-do. A packet of cold, stale matzah was brought into the house. There was no pail of beetroot soup in the corner, covered with a coarse cloth of unbleached linen. No dusty china service was fetched from the attic, where it had lain many years, between one Passover and another. His father brought in a dinner service from the street, one he had bought cheap, and of which the pieces did not match. But the exhilaration of the festival made itself felt for all that, and warmed their hearts. At home in Tartalov it had happened once or twice that Maya had lain in his little bed with eyes open, staring stock-still with terror into the silent blackness of the night, and feeling as if he were the only living soul in the whole world—that is, the whole house. And the sudden crow of a cock would be enough on these occasions to send a warm current of relief and security through his heart. His father's face looked a little more cheerful. In the daytime, while he dusted the cups, his eyes had something pensive in them, but his lips were set so that you thought, there, now, now they're going to smile. The mother danced the matzah pancakes up and down in the kitchen, so that they chattered and gurgled in the frying-pan. When a neighbour came in to borrow a cooking-pot, Maya happened to be standing beside his mother. The neighbour got her pot, and the women exchanged a few words about the coming holiday, and then the neighbour said, "'So we shall soon be having a rejoicing at your house.' And with a wink and a smile she pointed at his mother with her finger, whereupon Maya remarked for the first time that her figure had grown round and full. But he had no time just then to think it over, for there came a sound of broken china from the next room. His mother stood like one knocked on the head, and his father appeared in the door and said, Go! Go! His voice sent a quiver through the window-panes, as if a heavy wagon were just crossing the bridge outside at a trot. The startled neighbour turned and whisked out of the house. Maya's parents looked ill at ease in their holiday garb, with the face of mourners. The whole ceremony of the Passover Seder was spoiled by an atmosphere of the last meal on the eve of Tisha B'Av, the destruction of the temple, and when Maya, with the indifferent voice of one hired for the occasion, sang out, Manishtana Haloila Hazer Mikol Halilos, his heart shrank together. There was the same hush around him as there is in shul when an orphan recites the first Kaddish for his dead parents. His mother's lips moved, but gave forth no sound. From time to time she wetted a finger with her tongue, and turned over leaf after leaf in her service book, 
and from time to time a large, bright tear fell over her beautiful but depressed face on to the book, or the white tablecloth, or her dress. His father never looked at her. Did he see she was crying? Maya wondered. Then how strangely he was reciting the Haggadah! He would chant a portion in a long, drawn-out fashion, and suddenly his voice would break, sometimes with a gurgle, as though a hand had seized him by the throat and closed it. Then he would look silently at his book, or his eye would wander round the room with a vacant stare. Then he would start intoning again, and again his voice would break. They ate next to nothing, said grace to themselves in a whisper, after which the father said, Maya, open the door. Not without fear and the usual uncertainty as to the appearance of the prophet Elijah, whose goblet stood filled for him on the table, Maya opened the door. Pour out thy wrath upon the Gentiles who do not know thee. A slight shudder ran down between Maya's shoulders, for a strange, quite unfamiliar voice had sounded through the room from one end to the other, shot up against the ceiling, flung itself down again, and gone flapping round the four walls like a great wild bird in a cage. Maya hastily turned to look at his father, and felt the hair bristle on his head with fright. Straight and stiff as a screwed-up fiddle-string, there stood beside the table a wild figure in a snow-white robe with a dark beard, a broad bony face, and a weird black flame in the eye. The teeth were ground together, and the voice would go over into a plaintive roar like that of a hungry, bloodthirsty animal. His mother sprang up from her seat, trembling in every limb, stared at him for a few seconds, and then threw herself at his feet. Catching hold of the edge of his robe with both hands, she broke into lamentation. Shloimy, shloimy! You'd better kill me! Shloimy, kill me! Ay, ay, misfortune! Maya felt as though a large hand with long fingernails had introduced itself into his inside and turned it upside down with one fell twist. His mouth opened widely and crookedly, and a scream of childish terror burst from his throat. Tartilov had suddenly leapt wildly into view. Affrighted Jews flew up and down the streets like leaves in a storm. The white-faced Rebbe sat in his chair, his underlip trembling. His mother lay on her bed, looking all pulled about like a rumpled counterpane. Maya saw all this as clearly and sharply as though he had seen it before his eyes. He felt and knew that it was not all over, that it was only just beginning, 
that the calamity, the great calamity, the real calamity, was still to come, and might at any moment descend upon their heads like a thunderbolt. Only what it was he did not know, or ask himself. And a second time a scream of distraught and helpless terror escaped his throat. A few neighbours, Italians, who were standing in the passage by the open door, looked on in alarm, and whispered among themselves, and still the wild curses filled the room, one minute loud and resonant, the next with the spiteful gasping of a man struck to death. Mighty God, pour out thy wrath upon the peoples who have no God in their hearts. Pour out thy wrath upon the lands where thy name is unknown. He has devoured, devoured my body. He has laid waste, laid waste my house. Thy wrath shall pursue them, pursue them, or take them, or take them, destroy them from under thy heavens. End of If It Was a Dream by Loeb Shapiro